This is the Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. Joined this week by Michael McCann, he's the director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute here at UNH Franklin Pierce. Welcome back to the show. Well, AJ, thanks for having me back. So we're going to dive into a few of your more recent articles that are released on Sportico.com, where you can get all of uh, Professor McCann's writings. And we're going to start off with a couple uh, that are revolving around the MLB. So firstly, it looks like there's a uh, union negotiation going on when it comes to uh, the players. That's right. So the collective bargaining agreement between Major League Baseball and the Players Association expired. And as a result, they each side had to decide what to do next. When a CBA expires, the two sides can continue to abide by the CBA. This is true in labor relations across the country. Uh, unless either takes some sort of action, and Major League Baseball took an action literally within a minute of the CBA expiring, and that's to lock out the players, meaning telling the teams that they have to sever their employment from the players so players have to be removed from team websites. Players are not allowed to go to ballparks, at least in the context of their employment. And it's a bargaining tool to encourage players to capitulate on demands. And baseball wants to see a very different economic system. They want to have a, a, not a salary cap, but at least more constraints on how much teams can spend. And the players, of course, are opposed to that because that's going to affect the growth of their salaries. So it is it's fundamentally about money mm -hmm. and it's going to come down to sort of which side gives in first. Now, there's no immediate consequence in terms of games because opening day is not till March 31st right. of next year. So but but there are things that are affected, like players being signed and traded and contracts and those sorts of things. But. Uh, the fan, the typical fan is not going to really be impacted yet. Yeah, it, I mean, it seems to me, at least as a, not necessarily sports guy overall, but you always think about the Yankees with like their the reason why they were so powerful a few years back was because they just had unlimited money basically to hire whoever they want. I mean, is this something that's unique to the MLB or are some of the other leagues kind of uh, being similar, similar uh, ways of thinking about it? It's, it is somewhat unique because the other leagues have salary caps that, although there are exceptions and, and other features to them, but generally speaking, they make it impossible for a team to just sort of spend unlimited money for players. And in baseball, the union has traditionally been stronger and they've fought against that. So baseball has a luxury tax system where basically if your team spends too much, they get taxed a dollar for every dollar they go over, but it doesn't technically stop the spending. So this year, for example, the Dodgers had the highest payroll with 271 million, whereas the Baltimore Orioles had the lowest at 42 million. So wow. that's about six and 6.5 times higher. I mean, that, that's a wide disparity. So baseball is going to argue that disparity is bad for the game and makes it anti-competitive. Baseball has offered a salary floor that would require teams to spend a certain amount. 
but also what would be akin to a salary cap or a harsher tax that might be more deterring. But again, the players are going to say, well, well, what, this is just about taking money from us. You're all doing well, owners. The values of franchises have, have gone way up. No one's losing money here. So you're basically just trying to take money that should go to us. So it's really two two philosophies about this. Yeah, the is it there just that much money right now when it comes to baseball where it's just devolved into this where it's really hard to to deal with uh you can't make the fines large enough because they'd be too astronomical and the players are like no screw you I want to be able to make as much money as I can. Yeah, I sports despite covid which I think a lot of people expected would be a big big hurt to pro leagues it, it it didn't, to be honest. I mean, there was a loss of gate receipts because of canceled games. But even there, gate receipts are, are not where the money is in sports. It's in TV broadcasts. Right. So the the games continue. Franchise values continue to climb. There's no indication that in spite of a pandemic that's now what? Like it's going to be two years mm-hmm. uh, in March. Despite that, leagues are, are continue to do well. And I, I don't see that changing, or at least there's no reason why it would change. And the players have said, you're making all this money. If a pandemic can't slow down the growth, what can, right? Probably nothing. Do you think it's going to take a while before the uh, players' union kind of maybe com- begins compromising to this? Because it seems like they're holding a hard line. Yeah, I mean, the players' union would say they are comp- they, they would say that they have made concessions and that the owners are being unwilling. It just depends on who you ask, right? I mean, each side sort of has their own narrative, but there's no urgency to do something. I think that's clear. That kind of hurts it a little bit with getting anything done. It does. And look, the holidays are coming up. Everything shuts down pretty soon. So we will probably get into the new year, I'm guessing, into January. And once spring training nears in February, I think we'll see more of a a push to get things done. But in the meantime, there isn't going to be that same drive to make concessions. It reminds me of the federal government with regards to the budget and the deficits. Right. Like, no, we're we're gonna wait to the last minute because that's the <laughs> you need that leverage in order to get it done. It's really well, hard right now at the end of the season to have that leverage. It's human nature, AJ. Look at students, right? They wait till the end to study for finals. They could have been preparing all semester. I mean, it's uh, you know we're all sort of last minute creatures, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, until the deadline is right in front of us, so it's not unique. So what's going on with uh, sticking with MLB a little bit with Corey Seager? Right. So Corey Seager is an all-star player who had played for the Los Angeles Dodgers in recent years. He just signed a 10-year contract with the Texas Rangers as a free agent worth $325 million. And obviously a huge amount of money. But what's interesting, and this is something that I wrote with Robert Rayola, who is a CPA, a tremendous accountant in New York who represents athletes and, and many others in dealings. And he discovered that the Dodgers would have needed to pay Seeger as much as $76 million more to match the value of what he got in Texas because of California's, in part because of California's state income tax. And also by making more, once you pay someone more, they pay more to the federal government, right? So there are sort of these accelerating aspects to it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but it really does go to show the advantage that a state without an income tax, there are nine states in the country, including New Hampshire, that do not tax wages. We, we don't, unfortunately, don't have any pro major league pro teams. I wish we did. 
but we don't. But for other states like Texas, Florida, uh, Nevada, Tennessee, it gives them a real leg up. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, do you, especially with a lot of the, um, like California and New York, they've been notorious the last couple of years, especially with raising taxes more and more. You saw the a lot of people leaving California and the entertainment industry for Austin, Texas, especially. And, uh, and then with the COVID lockdowns put on top of that, I mean, it's really pushing a lot of these big names, whether it's baseball or podcasting even, which is, I mean, the big thing is everyone following Joe Rogan to, to Austin is, is the <laughs> basically a meme at this point. Um, is this, I mean, are we seeing the, the states begin to realize a little bit of this at all, or it seems like it's just floundering? Yeah, I mean, as long as there are these wide gaps in, in state income tax rates from zero to 13%, that, that's a huge difference. And we will see businesses move and athletes be affected by that. I, I think as the margin grows, we'll see behavior impacted. We know that people... I mean, money isn't everything, but money, you know, we, we work to, for our livelihood. So when the, the difference in what we take home and pay is so significant, uh, in, invariably it's going to have an effect on behavior, whether it's a business, like you said, whether it's a podcaster, whether it's a, a baseball player. Now, the, now, Corey Seager makes a fortune no matter what, yes, exactly. but, but, but $76 million is a lot of money. I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, that's a, in and of it's, he, he makes a lot, but that that it's hard to sort of just pretend it's not there right mm-hmm. and uh, if the federal government raises taxes as well we know that the build back better bill would contain and we and robert rail and i also wrote on this it contains provisions for essentially a surcharge if you make more than 10 million and then it goes up five percent and it goes up to eight percent if you make more than 25 million obviously that's going to affect very few people and most would not be sort of sympathetic to it but and that's fine, but it also has an effect on what people do, and that's always something to be thinking about. Do you think the uh, the CBA, the union negotiations, are going to have any of this kept in mind as they proceed? They they could certainly, and it, they should have been thinking about it really before the CBA expired. And and Robert and I wrote on that that if the Build Back Better bill becomes law, taxes are going to go up next year. And the significance of that is that some players sign huge signing bonuses. Mookie Betts got over $60 million in a signing bonus. If taxes are going up in 2022, you want that bonus paid in 2021. Right. right? So, so, so really they had until December 1st to get a deal done. Now, now again, we're talking about sort of funny money, right? Everyone's making a fortune with them. It's not about sort of empathy, but just about sort of, you know, why give up money when you could, when you don't have to give it up? So that, that's absolutely a factor. It seems like economics is playing big time into uh, the, these larger deals when it comes to uh, where leagues are deciding to have arenas because of upgrades needing to happen because you gotta, you got to upgrade them every 20 years or whatever. And uh, players deciding what state they decide to move to is having an impact. Yeah. And, and you're right about arenas because it's sort of keeping up with your competitors, right? So an arena built in 1990 is old compared to the new ones. And we know that teams often seek public funding, if not directly for the facility, at least for infrastructure around the facility. And that raises all sorts of questions of, is that a good use of taxpayer dollars to spend on an, on an entity that's largely generating wealth 
for ownership or players and, and employees of the, the team, not necessarily the public at large. The counter argument is that people don't want to lose their team, that, that the team is a big part of their livelihood, that it's 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 a great source of enjoyment to lose a team is pretty, pretty awful for fan bases. We've seen that in Seattle. We saw that in Cleveland before they got another team, Baltimore. I mean, there are all these cities and, and fan bases that have been adversely impacted. So uh, it makes sense that, that, that politicians want to avoid that. They don't want to be blamed, but it also raises the question of sort of what, what should we really be spending money on? So there's an MMA, uh, some MMA leagues going against each other right now when it comes to the shape of their arena, their, their, um, uh, the places ring. where they fight. Yeah. Uh, the ring. So what, what's happening here? This is just hilarious. So you just look at it on the surface level. Yeah, so th- so there's a triangle ring used in a version of mixed martial arts, and the ring was designed by BYB Extreme Fighting Series, and they're based in Miami. It- they have bare knuckle fighting events. They've had this ring for you know, I don't know five six years, uh, and a rival entity called Triller Fight Club has come up with a triangular shaped ring that is similar and how similar it is i guess depends on who you ask but it's clearly similar and the argument is that this is a violation of the law that there there's a patent there's a copyright there are trademark rights in this this lawsuit literally has patent copyright and trademark all in it so it would be a good ip exam i I think for students because it's got as the whole curriculum uh, put into one one fact pattern. The uh, the, argue, the the counter argument is, of course, that it's not the same. That that uh, it's not a violation of, of any of those properties. But it, but it's a really interesting case, just about sort of dimensions uh, within sports. And we've seen this come up uh, before in, in other instances where there have been litigation over facilities. Generally speaking, sports you can't sort of gain ownership of a sport itself, but you can gain some ownership over aspects of the sport, like a playbook, for instance, uh, or a certain way of delivering a sport. So there, there are arguments there. Uh, there are also arguments about, uh, you know, what happens within a game is sort of not protected, but the ancillary aspects of it can be. It, this kind of reminds me of the XFL a little bit. Like, I mean, is, are there, is it kind of similar to that where there, it's two, compete, two competing leagues that do very similar things? And in this situation, it just so happens to be they're using a triangle ring. Yeah, I, so, so that's definitely part of it. Now, the defendant has said that this is a new combat team sport, that their version of it is basically a new sport. Mm-hmm. So is it a new sport or is it a variation of a sport? The argument is that this this new sport incorporates both boxing and MMA as opposed to MMA itself. So, I, I, which again, is tough is because I, boxing is part of. I mean, that's the big thing. They right. don't want. They also don't want to raise the line too far because they're going to have Dana White at the UFC and knocking on their door, and he's got more money than anyone else. It it all gets into the same sort of pool of. The fight, I mean, fighting has taken off, right? It's very oh, yeah. popular in our country. Uh, despite sort of concerns about concussions and head injuries in football, I mean, these, these fighters are punching, <laughs> are punching each other repeatedly. And it, we don't hear the same sort of sense of concern 
uh, when it looks like it's probably causing the same damage, if not more, I don't know, but, uh, but the, wh- whatever it may be, people love this stuff. And, and, it, and I've watched it. It's fun to watch. Uh, I'll be the first to admit it. It's, they're really good athletes that, that also that are delivering a certain sort of style that, you know, this isn't like a street fight. These fighters are really trained and really skilled. So, um, you know, I, maybe it isn't popular to say that, especially uh, at a law school, but I, I do enjoy watching fighting. Now, how does copyright play into the shape of the ring? I mean, what does that look like if for someone that's uninitiated in this? Yeah, so the the plaintiff was awarded a copyright registration for the Trigon, which is the triple, excuse me, the triangle fighting surface design. So the design was given protection. That doesn't necessarily mean that the plaintiff's going to win because it arguably the design is being used differently if this is a different sport and the fight, the ring itself may be different, but the, the basic gist of it is that the design gets protection. It, that must cause, must, uh, I'd imagine that would cause some issues trying to defend in court when you figure baseball and softball have the same exact uh, layout. There's just sizing difference, which is basically the same as changing a flat surface with ropes around the edges into a slightly different configuration, I'd bet. Yeah, and and that's I, that's going to be an issue, especially as these sports become more popular. The the use of of a design becomes sort of public public property, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you you can't design a basketball. Nobody owns a basketball court, right? And the same is true here. I, the difference here, arguably, is that at least according to some, these are different sports, mm-hmm. and uh, that that we're sort of we're calling them under the umbrella of MMA, but within MMA there's enough variation that these issues might be treated differently. Yeah, that's the the confusing nature of of these different combat sports leagues where they, they, they work very differently than the larger leagues like the MLB and the NFL and everything like that. The UFC has its own thing, and then there's international ones or, that do very similar things, And but each of the players aren't necessarily, the, the combatants aren't necessarily employees of the league. They're all individual contractors in the UFC, and it, it, the landscape from a business perspective is very complex. Yeah, it's very complex, like you said, and the use of independent contractors rather than employees, the fighters not being unionized, which, you know, is good or bad, depending upon who you ask. It just sort of depends on the circumstances. So the the economy is very different. And also it's different under antitrust law, because in those leagues, the competing teams are competing businesses. So they're subject to Section 1 of the Sherman Act, which governs how competing businesses conspire. This is different in a league like this, where there's only one business. Maybe it's a monopoly under Section 2 of the Sherman Act, but it's not going to be vulnerable to Section 1 claims. So it's, it's also, that structure also has a big impact under antitrust law. Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute and writer over at Sportico, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To tell us for a word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to check out law.unh.edu slash podcast to get all of the back episodes of the show.